Well, turn with me to John chapter 17. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been working through the book of John for the last two years, and we are slowing it down a little bit in John 17, just because there's so much that's here that Christ has for us. So we are going to uh, take our time. And we're also going to even push pause in the section of John 16 that we're in, John 17 that we're in, because of some of the conversations and questions I received this week uh, through men's Bible study and different conversations. I wanted to be able to speak to, I think, some confusion concerning some of the instructions and some of the commands that were given to us here in John 17. So that's what we're going to do this morning. It'll be a little bit different of a sermon for us in light of that. So this morning, we're going to speak of a subject that is a bit of a dirty word in the Western world. It's the kind of word that most Christians would cringe of because of the implications that are attached to it. We have some of these words in our English language that happen to be tied to histories behind them. We have racial words that make all of us cringe when someone uses them. Words have meaning and often positive or in some cases negative in history. Words that are intended to be maybe a a good intention when used often leave us feeling dirty or guilty. When Clara decided to name her son, she never looked at his sweet baby face and thought that her little boy would become the most hated and negatively illustrated human being maybe in modern history. Clara's last name was Hitler, and she named her son Adolf. Before her son started a world war, Hitler was a name not associated with a grotesque atrocity. It was the name of a little baby boy who was loved by a mother named Clara. If I mentioned the word high school to you, unless you had a really, really bad experience at high school, it's not a word that you associate or cringe at. But if I mention the word Columbine, you immediately think of a horrific scenario associated with a high school and what happened there. See, Christianity too has words or a word that might not be as dramatic as slaughtering millions of people or a high school shooting. But it creates extreme emotions in individuals when it's mentioned. The word I'm referring to is called evangelism. I've been asking random people this week what if they were to honestly, if I, I said, listen, you need to not give me the spiritual answer, not give me the answer I want to hear. I want you to give me the real answer that comes to your gut, that comes to your mind the moment I mention a word. And you have to respond right away. You can't think about your answer. And of course, I, I asked them, and this is what came out of their mouths. Guilt, fear, or anxiety. Those were the three common answers. And that answer resonated with me as a Christian. I have grown up in a culture where there's a heavy press for evangelism. When I was in Bible college up in Northern California, I went to a school that none of you have heard of, and I don't even know if it's still in existence. It was a small startup school. And one of the requirements was for this Bible school that you had to go out every Saturday, and they called it door knocking. You had to go door to door every Saturday and find somebody that would allow you to listen to the gospel, and you had to share the gospel with them. Now, they, of course, you can't force them to believe that you know, but we had to at least share the gospel and we always had to go with somebody. And so the guy I always went with, he was shy. I was annoyed because I didn't want to do it. 
And so we would knock on doors and knock on doors and knock on doors. And, you know, this little four-year-old would come and say, before he could say a word, we'd just start sharing the gospel with him because we got to get it in. You know, when we're done, he goes, no habla English. It's like, oh, well, it's not my fault to understand English. I got my one in. I got it. And we went back and we would have to fill out cards, you know, in chapel the next day. Did you do your, did you do your job? And of course we did. And I, I associated it with just, just this, a dirtiness, like as if somehow I was this traveling salesman. But the majority of Christians today do not associate evangelism with, with something that is positive. Evangelism is not a trip to the candy shop. It's more of like that. Got to go to the pharmacy, get my flu shot. It's not what you're excited about, but it's a preventative measure because that's what Christians do. And the Western world has created, I think, this sad state of of this understanding of evangelism in modern history. Those who have had, I think, the loudest volume when it comes to promoting evangelism have unfortunately defined the word for us and the emotions centered around the word. We are not the only ones who associate the word with bad experiences either, not only Christians. The unbelieving world does not see the word being something that invokes excitement about Christianity. Oh, yes, especially if someone's been evangelized by someone who's obnoxious. Not a great experience. No, the word really is associated with intolerance and belligerence. Even though you may have good intentions, unfortunately, the world doesn't see it in that way. Anybody ever seen or experienced or maybe have done some street preaching? Unfortunately, they aren't preaching and heralding good news except for accusations, warning people of their destination, which is hell, or or those who hold street signs, thinking of Westboro Baptist. God hates, and then put a word in there that I'm not going to use. Or though I would have liked to say the traveling salesman, as I was trained to be, people feel that they are being suckered into buying something they had never were even shopping for during their day. I tend to call these people the telemarketers of the evangelical world. Does there ever, is there ever a positive feeling when a, a strange number shows up on your phone and you answer it and you hear the bustle? Voices in the background by a long pause. And then you hear, is Mr. Moffat there? To which I always want to reply, I'm sorry, this is his lawyer. Can I get your name? He has placed his number on the do not call list. I haven't done it yet, but I want to. As it happens, these extreme examples are so distasteful, they negatively affect what is at the core of a beautiful experience, what should be at the core of a beautiful experience. And before I explain and I'm, what I mean by beautiful, I want to explore one other area that is associated with the negative experience with this word evangelism. Most Christians have been told at some time in their life that it is the responsibility of every Christian to actively share the gospel with every person that they come in contact with or on a regular basis. It starts when you're a child. We ingrained it into us. Songs like, I don't know if you ever sang this song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide under a bushel? No. Or even go tell it on a mountain. Go tell it everywhere. One even can conclude that if you are not actively sharing your faith, evangelizing, and when they mean evangelize, they mean by one of these approved methods. You are in sin, and if it persists, 
you should even question whether you are a believer, whether you are truly saved. Not any of this beginning to ring a bell with anyone, because it is with me. Anyone willing to admit they are feeling guilty right now because they are not sharing their faith like they should? Well, I know probably a lot of you are. Well, to help us fully understand what Jesus is pressing us in, in John 17, when he says, I have sent you into the world, we're going to have to pause and clarify some words because they've been, I think, damaged. For the rest of our time this morning, we are going to look at two parts of evangelism that have been tragically confused, that hopefully create some clarity for this word for our own congregation. We can't fix it in the world, but we can at least create some clarity here. First, we're going to look at the translation or really the meaning of evangelism, of the word. And I would say, to whom does it apply? Who is it who is supposed to be evangelizing? So let's begin with the biblical clarity on the word evangelism. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word eangelion, or engelion is another way of saying that. The literal translation, if you were to just, the way they translate it is gospel or good news. That's what this word means. Now, in the verb form of the meaning, it changes slightly. It means announcement or bringing good news. And this is uh, what we have today, evangelize, or evangelism is the, the Latinized verb of the word, of gospel of good news that we use. So the meaning of the word is, I'm sure you can see, is, is simple and not complicated. <laughs> when someone thinks of good news, street preacher and door-to-door salesman is not the first thing that pops into our mind. We don't think them of bringing good news our way. Now they think they are because they've got a great vacuum they want you to buy. Good news normally comes in a bad circumstance. I consider good news to be the war is over. You don't have cancer or the long awaiting of a child. You're pregnant. That's all really great news. That's what we want to hear. Evangelism simply means the bearer of good news. Evangelism, according to uh, the origins, not associated with these methods that we've just talked about, but with the message. And what is the purpose of the message? What is it this good news is bringing with it? Well, according to Christ and according to what we know of the New Testament, to offer hope where none can be found. That's good news. To offer rest for the weary. All of you who are heavy laden and weary, come to me and what? I will give you rest. To offer life to those who are dead. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This message of Jesus is to offer. But most gospel presentations feel like a sales pitch. For some product that you don't want. Look how dirty your carpet is. Boy, have any of you ever had these people in your house? I can make it better. And then they, they sit there and clean your furniture and your couches. And you're like, great. Thanks for pointing out I'm a dirty person. Appreciate that. Can't wait to buy your vacuum. I can remember the opening line I was taught in evangelism class when I was in college. Some of you may have heard this. If you died today, are you 100% sure you would spend eternity with God? And I always was a little like, I'm going to switch that up because that seems like someone's going to say, wait, what? Like, are, are you threatening me? Do you know I'm going to die? Is it something I don't know? What kind of question is that? It's a horrible question. Now, I know these people have good intentions and they're trying their best to present the gospel, but sometimes we aren't thinking through what we're doing. 
The gospel is presented as life insurance in case someone dies is what we're doing. It's an emergency documentation or belief. But good intentions don't always justify what I would say is a bad method. Unfortunately, the method has changed the meaning of the word, but I'm hoping we can fix that here. And here's how. Here's how I think we can adjust it and fix it. Let's look at our second clarification this morning. Who does the word evangelism apply to? Now, I want to clarify, I fully embrace the teaching that one cannot come to faith in the gospel, that they can become a child of God unless they first somehow have interaction with the message, whether it's hearing it or reading it. And so Paul is very clear about this. If you want to write this down, it's Romans 10, 14 and 15. He says, how then will they call on him, Christ, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him and who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So it's very obvious that Paul believes that those who come to Christ come by the message of Christ. Now, I firmly believe this to be true and why we preach the gospel each and every Sunday. It is the primary message that flows from Scripture and that flows from us. It's also at our men's and women's Bible study. We think it's, it's the foundation of our faith. But I also believe the gospel is not only for those seeking salvation, but for those who have already been saved. Paul tells the Corinthians, I cannot wait to come to you and preach the gospel to you. It's not just for the lost. Evangelism, we always assume, is lost. But Paul makes it very clear that the gospel is the foundation of everything that we do. So not only to the unbeliever, but the believer. Why? Because our faith is strengthened by hearing this message time and time again from every part of Scripture. We often assume the gospel only sits within the four evangelists who wrote them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that's not the gospel. The first mention of the gospel actually begins in Genesis chapter 3 when God promises to write what Adam and Eve made wrong. He says, there's one coming from you, Eve, that will make all things right. So the gospel is not just about Jesus' death on the cross, but it consumes all of Scripture. Now, here's where some of you may be shocked with what I'm about to say. So please hear me out before you go into the heretic mode on me, okay? Just hear me out. I do not believe the Bible calls every Christian to what is known as personal evangelism. Before you take your shoe off and hurl it at me, there's some reasons for my conclusion here. And I think why some of you consider evangelism to be such a dirty word. There's two shifts that have happened in the Western Christianity. And these are the two shifts that have happened, and I would say, in the last 100, 150 years. Here's, here's the first one. We have individualized Christianity. I'll explain what that means in a minute. And secondly, we have codified Christianity. Let's begin with the first point. We have been indoctrinated in individualism. It's part of our culture. We are the self-made man, the self-made woman. It's all about our self-improvement. How do we make ourselves better? We hear the language such as your personal relationship with Jesus. How many have heard this before? And it's, it's emphasized your personal relationship with Jesus. Because your salvation is between you and Jesus, the obligation associated with it is being in this relationship or all falls, the, the responsibility all falls on you. And we are quickly then handed a list of duties. Okay, now that you're in this relationship, 
This is how it functions. First of all, we need to be growing spiritually, and this is how it's done. Develop a personal devotional time, right? It's like first one, right? Develop a personal devotional time with God. That is when you meet with him alone. And to help you with this, the time should be spent in prayer, Bible reading, and journaling. The more time you spend, the more you will grow. It's kind of logic, right? Second, we need to be serving God in this new relationship that he has found. He requires us to obey and serve him. So caring for the needs of the city or caring for the needs of the church and volunteering for ministries at your church, this is part of your responsibility as your personal relationship to your father. Thirdly, we need to be giving at least 10% of our income to God. He needs it for stuff. Which I always want to say, God does not need your money. The church does, but not God. God doesn't need anything from you, let alone your measly gift. The point in all of these is that the entire system created by modern Western Christian is centered around you maintaining your relationship with God. From the moment you say, I believe, the next step is maintenance. And it's your personal grooming that gets it done. And if you don't, here's the warning that happens. If you don't, as your father, he will be displeased with you and possibly the warning of discipline by him. And we all know what happened to Ananias and Fire, and we don't want that to happen. We don't want to lock over dead. And I definitely don't want to be burying any of you out back. So keep the act clean. So what ends up happening is your pastor is going to give you some biblical tips each week to help you along the way. Some work. Some don't. Let us know if any of these uh, finds, if you find any of these that do work and share them with us. And you can even write a book if it works really well. Okay, you're good. So pay attention to the tips. Here's my seven tips for today for self-improvement. So week in and week out, you are trained to focus on your spiritual needs and growth. I guess I could say all of that to say, somehow we've been tripped into thinking your relationship with God and your spiritual growth is your responsibility. I would encourage you to read the book of Ephesians, specifically starting in chapter four, or Corinthians chapter 10, verses through four, uh, uh, chapters 10 through 14. And I want you to tell me what Paul does with individuals. He never individualizes your Christianity. As a matter of fact, he's trying to pry it out of your hands. He is fighting you on it. He is telling you, you can't do it on your own. You're not supposed to. This is why he uses language like body. Not all of you can be eyes. Not all of you can be hands. Not all of you can be mouths. You're all different and you need each other. And he says, without love for each other, you cannot grow. And in Ephesians, he says, listen, when the body functions properly, that means every single person in the church, it builds itself up. It does not say when you function properly, you build yourself up. So we've been, we've been trained to think the very opposite of what Scripture tells us. You know, Paul's jaw would drop through the floor with the notion that our spiritual growth was accomplished through our own personal efforts. I promise you it would. And then it would drop through the floor to the ground if you were to tell him of attempting to please God and find assurance based upon your personal performance. It's not in Scripture. 
with a great amount of word and clarity, Paul writes to the Christian church and instructs them that the primary focus of individuals, once they come to God as a child, is their reliance on the church and not their personal effort. Please don't mistake. I'm not saying you aren't personally involved, but you don't put your trust in your personal involvement. Read Ephesians 4 when you get a chance today. Paul pointedly tells the church that maintaining unity is the number one responsibility that he is pushing them towards. He starts the conversation by, okay, now that you're saved, here's how you walk worthy according to the gift you just received, right? And he says, maintain unity through love. That's the responsibility. Our spiritual growth through the function of the church is then what comes through that unity. So the conclusion then is when we all work together, caring and loving each other, using our spiritual gifts, the body, not the individual, grows. It's very counterintuitive to what we've been trained. Most of you show up, if you've grown up in a typical evangelical church, ready to receive a list of how to help yourself be better this week or things to stay away from. Here's, here's a good example of this. Paul gives instructions to, uh, let, me, let me change this up here. Paul is, Paul is writing to the church for the purpose of the function of the church. When Can you point to, and I would encourage you, take a month to do it if you want, read all of the letters to the church. So starting from Romans all the way to the end of 1 John. And I want you to answer one very important question. Who's the audience? Because the audience will determine the application. And as an example, Paul writes these instructions not to the individuals of the church, but always to the corporate reality of the church. Even when he writes to Timothy, to the pastor, the application is to his congregation. Yet when we read our Bibles, if you go home and read your Bible morning and morning for your personal development time, you're going to read it and apply, how does this apply? It's, it's we've been trained. What does it say? What does it mean? And what's the last one? How do I apply it to my life, right? Not to our church, but to my life. This is where I think personal evangelism comes in because everything else in our lives is personal. We tack this on as well. We assume we must be doing this on our own because everything else apparently is on our own as well. And this leads me to point number two. We've individualized Christianity. And then secondly, we've codified Christianity. Codification means creating laws where no laws exist, according to Scripture. We create a code of conduct for Christians. That is, unless you do these certain acts, you are violating God's word. It's codified. It's code. And in my past, I have been told a number of things that I must be doing as a Christian. And I never find these commands that I should be doing in Scripture. And this is a common practice. In some extreme circles, it's what you wear or what you watch is what's regulated or codified. Others, it's what you say or where you go. And you will be determined whether you're a good Christian or a bad Christian, acceptable Christian or a sinful Christian based upon these codes. Bible reading has been uh, turned into a codification for years. Let me ask you this. How much Bible reading is enough to know that God's happy with you and it's acceptable. How much Bible reading? Do you know? Well, people would always say, well, the more the better. That's not an answer. That's not an answer. I can tell you how much faith is required for you to go from sinner to saved. 
Jesus says any faith, any faith is enough. But yet then we codify it when it comes to something like Bible reading. But, and we do the same thing. This goes for sharing my faith. How many times a day or a week or a year must I share my faith to know that God is pleased and satisfied with me, that I have upheld my responsibility? Do you know how often you're supposed to share your faith? Because if it's supposed to be all day long, then you're a bad employee. (laughs) You're supposed to be doing the job you got hired for, unless your job is to share the gospel. And you get paid to do that. I don't even get to do that, and I'm a pastor. But what clarity can we bring when it comes to some of these requirements that have been placed on us? Here is, here is the problem and the confusion. Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers to the church never require every Christian to personally be evangelizing. They never put a time frame, and then they, put, they never put an individual on it. I know that's maybe shocking to hear, but I would challenge you. Go read scripture. You will not hear this command given on a normal basis from these writers to the church. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Paul, with great clarity, calls the Christian to place their faith in the gospel. He makes every effort to draw us closer and closer to Christ by trusting in his promises. He says things like lay hold of, look to, lay aside distractions, believe, trust, hold fast, walk, see. He says all of these words to push us towards belief in the gospel. The second point Paul emphasizes in his letters, which we've already talked about, is the interaction with each other because of the gospel. Paul picks up where Jesus left off in his ministry, the priority of loving God, first commandment, love God. What's the second commandment? Love each other. Love each other. So Paul gives structure and life to these two commands to all of the churches. If you read all of the epistles, you'll see him uplifting Trust in the gospel. We'll use Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians as a great example. Uplifting the glory of Christ. And then he backs it with, how is this the gospel applied? Love one another. Don't be envious. Don't be mean. Don't be, use your words carefully. Don't be slipping around with each other. Don't be, I mean, it's all, all of those are connected to love. They're the opposite of love. To steal is the opposite. Why can you think of anything that would be not the opposite of love? So Paul gives in these instructions and these two commands to all of the church. So how should we then understand evangelism when it comes to these commands? Because you're not going to find a command or instructions in the New Testament to have a personal evangelism in your life. I'm going to answer this briefly, but I will provide a full explanation because of time next week. I know some of you are saying, you're kidding me. You can't say that and then not provide a full explanation. I have to. That's just how it works. Now, first of all, I believe every Christian is to carry with them the light of the gospel. It's obvious in scripture that this is part of our mission as a church. You can write this down. Matthew chapter 5, and this is where this song comes from, 514 and following. He says, "You speaking to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a, on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
but on a stand and give it and gives light into all the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven so it's very obvious when Jesus says to his disciples in John 17 verse 17 you are not of the world just as I am not of the world this is what he's referencing the way that you think and the way that you respond to the world is not the way the world responds He's saying that response is the light. When you demonstrate love instead of reviling, when you demonstrate kindness and grace instead of being mean, he's saying that is what the world sees and it's a light to them. But please don't confuse that with evangelism because that's not what he means here. He will clarify that in a minute. Now, here's another passage. We can write it down. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Most of you have heard this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Well, that makes sense. It's obvious that if you're following Christ, you're going to sound different than the people around you. And they're going to ask you a question. Hey, what's with the... What's with this? What's with that? Peter says, hey, you should have a reason to answer that. You should be able to answer that. Now, in some of your minds, you're thinking, yeah, but I don't know all the terms and I don't know all the verses. Listen, what are you putting your hope in? Are you putting it in the terms and all the verses memorized? Are you putting in Jesus Christ? It's a simple answer. I believe that Jesus Christ is my hope. And if you want to know more about that, follow me on Sunday. We'll get you a full answer. Again, but this is different from what we've been trained to be personal evangelism, isn't it? And there's also Philippians chapter 2 and following. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you have shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We have something the world does not. He's saying, remember what you're holding on to. And this ties back to what Jesus says in John 17, 17 again. The mission which is connected to finding the lost sheep of Christ. And then the last one is Colossians. We're going to write down Colossians 4, 5. says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the way that we love and care for people is the way in which the world will know that something is different about following Jesus. Every time I see a street preacher yelling at people, I just want to say, read Colossians 4, 6. Go read it now. Seasoned with salt, meaning it tastes good. When they hear it coming, it's coming from a position of love, not of condemnation and meanness. This is why Jesus says to his disciples in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have what for one another? Love, love for one another. It comes back to the two commands. Once again, love God, love each other. So it's very obvious that every Christian is a preacher of the word. I happen to be called and commissioned to do so. We have elders who are called and commissioned to be preachers. But it's very obvious 
in Paul's instructions, no one's confused that every single human being should be a preacher. Paul gives these two offices and gifts of the Spirit. But there are those who clearly will be gifted to share the gospel as well. There's also those who are called, Paul even says in Ephesians 4, the gift of an evangelist. Now, I will tell you right now, if I'm being um, open, I don't want to say honest. I always want to be honest. Open? (laughs) I do not have the gift of an evangelist. Some of you are like, come on, you talk to everybody. Um, it kind of comes with the job title. It's like a merit, like a moment you tell someone you're a pastor and you have to perform like a magician. It's like, you just have to do that. But I don't like walking up to perfect strangers and starting a very deep, hard, like it's not natural for me. I have to work it up and make sure I don't vomit on them while I do it. (laughs) The gift are not the two in the same. I know what some of you are thinking. If I were to tell you right now, hey, we're all going to go up. We're going to go to Walmart. We're going to walk around and walk. You would be like, ah, I'm never going back to that church. Out. It's not happening. And then some of you are like, that sounds awesome. You probably have the gift of evangelist. Then let's do it. That would be great. More people come to Jesus. And you're right. More people would come. But there's other gifts in the scriptures that we are told about. Have you ever heard about those who have the gift of hospitality? I know people in this church who have the gift of hospitality because when I go to their home, I feel loved and cared for. There are those who have the gift of mercy. These are gifts that that God gives our church for the use of our church. The gift of love and patience. I know some of you have patience because you have to do with me. I think it's a requirement to be on the elder board. You got to have the gifts of patience because you're dealing with me. But to say that every single Christian should have every single gift is to miss Paul's instructions. Now, most of the time, those who do have the gift of evangelism tend to judge those who don't have this gift. And it comes easy and natural for them. And so they hold this over the people's heads. Like, what, you don't want to see people saved? Yeah, no, I'm damn everybody. That's what I want. Thanks for making me feel like an awesome Christian today. I always want to walk up to this person and say, you know, you boast of your ability to evangelize, but you lack mercy and love. You lack mercy and love. Why is your gift more important than the one who is gifted with hospitality? According to scripture, it's not. As a matter of fact, Paul takes all gifts and he collapses them. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if you have not love, you're but a noisy instrument that no one wants to hear. Now, just because one, just because you are not gifted doesn't mean you shouldn't share your faith. <laughs> Clearly, if God puts someone in your life and the opportunity comes, this is what he says, be ready to answer. Because of your love, you're going to look different. If you do this properly, you're going to draw attention. Be ready to answer this question. When somebody goes, "What? why do you do that? How come you do that? I remember when I was in college, or actually in seminary, I worked for Apple as a manager. And so I had to take people out on the, on the sales floor and train them how to sell. Thankfully, I didn't have to sell myself because I hate selling. But I trained people how to sell. I don't know how that works. But uh, one of the, the questions we started talking about, what did, what did I do when I wasn't working for Apple? And I said, well, actually, I, on the weekends, I, I preach and I pastor. And, and the comment from this particular gentleman was, yeah, you're a pretty good guy. 
And I just, I stopped and I said, hey man, I'm gonna tell you right now. Do you portray everything about yourself to the world? He's like, well, of course not. And I said, do you assume that I do? I said, there is nobody who is a good guy. No one accepts us to be good. As a matter of fact, if we take what's supposed to be good and we compare a lot, he's like, all right, you can stop. I get it. You're not a good guy. <laughs> because well, why would you say that? Like, why would you say that about yourself? Which then led into a great conversation. But it wasn't why I started the conversation. And of course, I told him we had to continue the conversation at lunch because I was supposed to be training him how to sell computers. But to be hunting people down so that you can share the gospel with them, I'm not convinced Paul commanded the individuals to be doing this. As a matter of fact, it's very obvious in the New Testament, you have them going into places where conversations are being started. Paul would go talk with philosophers and have conversations about philosophy. In the book of Acts, the three, we're going to talk about this next week, 3,000 people are saved, and then they went out into their homes, and conversations started to happen with their neighbors about what had happened to them. The church as a body is to be carrying out the Great Commission collectively. It's, Jesus made it very obvious I'm leaving you here, John 17, 18. I'm leaving you here to continue the work that I was sent here for. But he tells the body that this is going to happen. And it makes sense when the writers of the New Testament then don't pick up on it and say, every single one of you need to be out, in the, out on the street banging down doors, making sure people are coming to Christ. I think there's a reason. There are more people, I think, that are turned off to that than they are turned on to the gospel. Closing with John 17 again, I think it's obvious uh, when Jesus leaves the world, he makes sure his disciples are pounded with one thing in John 17. You are secure by your faith, and the mission is to be accomplished by love. If you come to any other conclusion in John 17, I think you might be reading a different book than what's been handed to us. It is our love for each other, if you it's your love by one another that the world will know you're my disciples. It's, our, it's your love for one another and your love for God that is what draws men to himself. And then the moment that you have that opportunity, you have to share the gospel because that's what transforms them. My good works won't transform someone's heart, but it may give me the light to shine the gospel for them. This is why at our church, we want to herald not a level of platform. This is where you're at as a Christian, but we want to make sure the world understands we are not here to judge you. You say the, the church is full of hypocrites? You're right. Why don't you come join us? Because you're one too. Do you tell everybody the truth about yourself? Of course you don't. No one does. Everyone is in equal need of grace. So as a church, as Anthony had already mentioned, mentioned, it is the responsibility of our church to advance the gospel in our community. It's to advance it here, making sure that we are ministering and being faithful to trust in and to grow and to be strengthening each other through love. And then because of how well we do that here, we naturally go out. This is when Jesus says, make sure that your love is being demonstrated with how you're interacting with people and how you're caring for them. Of course, God in his wisdom knows when this happens, people are going to ask you, well, why do you do that? Why do you do that? And then you have the answer that Peter says, be ready to give them an answer of the hope that lies within you. We're going to spend um, next week with more time of, of looking at other passages. For instance, uh, Matthew, right? The command of the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
How does that not apply to us? There's some other verses I think we need to create some clarity where I think confusion has been. But if there's anything I want you as a congregation to know, we spent a lot of time last week, and we're going to tie these two sermons together now. We spent a lot of time last week looking at how we, because of our individualization of our faith, we do not understand that the mission of our life is not to make ourselves better for the sake of making ourselves better or for the approval of God. Secondly, the mission of our life and the mission of God is not to make ourselves comfortable. We pursue comfortability. We want, we want God to answer our prayers to make us comfortable. He says, no, your mission. And the one thing he requests is protect their faith from Satan and help them advance the mission, which is finding the lost sheep and caring for them. If we take evangelism and it becomes dirty for us, then we won't be advancing what we should be advancing, which is the gospel. So next week, we'll spend more time doing that. Men, let's get ready for communion. One of the reasons that we take the Lord's table every single week is because we believe it is necessary for our faith. Throughout scripture, we are told there are means. Means meaning that God gives us ways in which he strengthens our heart, he strengthens our faith, he helps us fight temptation, and he helps us love one another. And those means are the preaching of his word, the public preaching of his word, the public reading of his word, prayer, and the Lord's table. Because in the Lord's table, as well as prayer, we are admitting with open hands our needs. The moment you open your mouth to pray to the Father, you are admitting you need something. And it's not within your own means to get it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be depending upon him. You're depending. The reason why we take the Lord's table is that it is, again, it is our dependence upon the Father It's a reminder, it's a symbol that the Father, the presence of the Spirit is here and it is through His presence we find encouragement. I say these things because if you are not sure that you truly are a believer or you're confused on the gospel or if you think somehow your performance this week or this year is why God accepts you, I want to encourage you, don't take the table. That is not why we take it. It is a reminder of the glorious gift that was given to us by faith through grace alone. And if that's what you believe, then I would encourage you, have your faith strengthened. Trust in Christ and him alone and join us today in common union, taking on the elements. Let's pray. Our Father, it is at this moment we move from the proclaimed word and now we come to the visible word where we look at the cup as you give it to the disciples and we look at the bread as you give it to the disciples. And you told them to 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 be reminding themselves that this is you for us. And so, Lord, as we receive you, strengthen our faith. Help us to know it's not our performance that makes us acceptable. It's not our faithfulness that makes us accessible to you. But, Lord, you saved us, and we put our faith in you, not in our faith, but in you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.